Okay, so for those of you that have not maybe been here for the last couple of weeks, we've started a new series. Um, it's called The Controversial Christ. Does that sound exciting to you? <laughs> um, you know what's interesting is if you just take time just to read the words of Jesus, pretty much, oh, sorry, I actually might need that. We all, we all know Bethany's form of sharing is there's lots of possibilities, and I actually never really know where I'm going to land, uh, but that is a possibility depending on which direction we go. <laughs> little insight into my not-so-wonderful spontaneity. Um, let's turn to Matthew chapter 21. How many of you guys know if you read the words of Jesus, they go utterly and entirely against all of our humanistic tendencies? Ha-ha! <laughs> and so oftentimes it's very easy for us to uh, come up with a lens and an image and a person of Jesus that is not actually what the Word of God de demonstrates and speaks of. And so what we're doing is we're taking some time to pause and look at the life of Christ, to look at the words of Jesus, um, and allowing them to transform our hearts and our minds. So... Um, not so popular passage of scripture is actually what I'm going to be teaching today. Um, and if I'm going to be fully honest, I, when I began reading it and mulling it over, I thought I was going to go one direction with it. Um, and you'll kind of follow me as I read it, for those of you that are familiar with me. Um, but as I was reading and studying, I had to go a different direction. Um, and so today what we're going to talk about is when Jesus enters the temple... And he flips over the tables. And for those of you that are not familiar with the story, we're actually going to read through that. Um, but this is what I want to say to you, is that what we have to do as we look at these things is instead of adjusting and trying to adapt Jesus to our preferences, our lives need to be adjusted and adapted to the man Christ Jesus. And so we're going to read through this passage of Scripture and really see how it applies to our lives. Um, it's very easy when you read Scripture to somehow apply it to the church as an organization or a structure. It's very easy to apply it to sinners and other people. It's very easy to see how it could apply to family members or anybody other than yourself. <laughs> but what we're going to do today is we're going to look and, and, and evaluate how does this apply to us as individuals. And so in Matthew 21, I'm going to give you guys a little bit breakdown. Um, Matthew 21, Mark 11, 15, and Luke 19, 45, these three gospels all give an account of when Jesus came into the temple and he cleansed it. Now, the interesting thing is in the book of John, John chapter 2 is actually when John gives this account. And so if you study out this passage of Scripture, it's widely believed that at the beginning of Jesus' life, which is the account, uh, Jesus' ministry, which is the account in John chapter 2, would be at the beginning of his ministry, and then again at the end of his ministry, because the other three Gospels are right after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem which was before Jesus was betrayed and before he died on the cross. And so theologians believe that there was actually two separate occasions. There's other theologians that may think that it was actually all one account and John just chose to place it at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. So you can take that and do what you want with that. But this is the, the text that we're looking at today. And those are the, three account, uh, the four accounts that you find in the gospel, but also the different time frames 
timeframes of those accounts. And so if you turn to, um, oh, I'm actually in Luke. Let's go to Matthew. Sorry. Let's go to Matthew 21. You're probably there. And this is when Jesus um, had come into Jerusalem, and all of the Jewish people were assembling in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So it says, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all of those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written. I want you to say that out loud. It is written. Jesus is quoting Isaiah. Jesus is quoting scripture. I want to say before we even go into the rest of this text is that it's, it's largely important that we as believers can find where it is written. For the things that we want to hold as our endearments to and our convictions and our beliefs and our preferences, we need to ask the question, where is it written? And can I find it in the authority of God's word? Because Jesus was not just moving off of um, a desire or a preference or an emotion in the moment. He was going back to the authority of what Isaiah said. It is written. It says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you have made it into a den of thieves. Then the, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now in John chapter 2, if you want to turn there, as I said to you earlier, um, this, this time the account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, and Romans. It's a song we teach the kids upstairs. Um, learn it if you struggle to find your... <laughs> uh, John chapter 2. Uh, verse 13 through 17. And so John gives this account, and like I said, as th some theologians believe, this was actually at the beginning of Je uh, Jesus' ministry and one time at the end. Um, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who, who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then his disciples remembered that it was written. Can you say that it was written? <laughs> Zeal for your house has eaten me up. This is what was prophesied about Jesus, that zeal for the house of God would consume him. And so they were actually remembering that this was said of Jesus, that he would have such zeal for his house that he would be consumed with the zeal of God for his house. And so what we find in this passage is two things. Is number one, Jesus was addressing their worship. He was going after this issue of worship, but he was also dealing with the issue of money amongst them. And what all of us need to recognize today is that in our, and I'm going to say it's an American cultural issue, this is not the case for the church worldwide. 
But for the American church, the American gospel, so much of our perceptions, our attitudes, our motives, our ideas are centered around our economic system. And so what you have in Jerusalem in that time is you actually have that the Jewish people were all coming from all different lands and they were coming to give their offerings. They were coming to give their sacrifices. So what they had to do is they had to exchange their currency. This was a very practical thing. Very practically, they needed to exchange their currency to be able to give in the temple. But they also had come from afar, and so they weren't able to bring with them animals and oxen and sheep and doves and all of these things. So there was a convenience factor to being able to purchase these sacrifices right there at the door. But what ends up happening in the midst of all of this is that you have money changers who are making a profit. And what you have is that instead of there being the purity and the sincerity of worship taking place, his house becomes a place of commerce. And what we have to understand of people is outside of this structure, outside of even necessarily hilltop church, part of what this passage of scripture is addressing is that we as people become so conditioned around the the place of what is profit and what is gain. And we don't even realize it. If you're here today and you're like, well, money doesn't have a hold on me. Well, let me just tell you, I know about 20 missionaries that are in great need of financing. If you would like to empty your savings and finance the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth. I also know about five single mothers that are struggling greatly raising children alone because of fathers abandoning them and their children. If you would like to empty your savings... We do so much in the name of wisdom and rationale that is ultimately not the kingdom of God. Do you know it is said of the son of man that he had no place to lay his head? Yet we as a people are so consumed with our future and what we can acquire and what we can attain and what we can secure for yourself. Hear me today. I am not saying something to you that I myself do not wrestle over very deeply. I'm going to give you the translation of this. This is kind of personal, but we all know there's nothing ever hidden in my life. It all just goes out there. This is how this translates. Makes a ton of sense to anybody I speak to to take out a loan to put an addition on my house because guess what? I get a return on my money because the value of my house goes up. That loan makes sense. If I then talk about taking out a loan to adopt a child... That becomes foolish and wasteful. No financial advisor would advise that. Guess what? Because no one can see the monetary gain that comes from that. But can I say to you, $50,000 for an expansion on a house, yes, there comes a return because I can get my money back. But $50,000 to invest in the life of a child who will be forever influenced for eternity, that is the mindset of the kingdom of purchasing souls. And not the question of how I might gain. Hear me. Hear me. I am not trying to condemn anybody here. I own a home. And I've owned one for 10 years. It was an extraordinary God act. Somebody gave us a deposit for our house for the down payment. I am not against the blessing of God in your life. I'm not against the blessing of God in my life. Guess what? I've had five coach purses given to me. Not one of them have I ever purchased. And at the first time of it being given to me, I didn't actually know what it was. I had to Google it. (laughs) 
the person that gave it to me thought it was a really big deal. She's like, I bought the same one for myself. And she only has very high-end things, so I thought, I better look up coach. This is about when I was 20. <laughs> and I say that to say, there is nothing wrong with, with high-quality, beautiful things. There is nothing wrong with extravagance. The issue comes down to the motive of our heart. And when we are setting our ambition for gain rather than giving... And we must come to the place that we allow God to add the increase in our lives. That we allow God to be the one to increase what we have. Not because we fought for it with our own hands. Or with our own ambition. And so what you find is ultimately in this passage, he's addressing the fact that they were profiting and they were seeking to gain off of the worship of others. Now hear me, this passage speaks to the fact that oftentimes our worship of Christ is not in sincerity and simplicity, but we have a mindset of what we gain from Christ. How can Christ benefit me? What are the blessings that he's going to give to me? You know, we don't even realize it that even in the terms of things like fasting and prayer, that with ultimately the singular issue is you are worthy. You are worthy. Even if we see no tangible outcome, you are worthy. But oftentimes, and I, I'm going to say this because I've been in the prayer movement for 20 years and I can. Oftentimes, you see people that start on the course of prayer and fasting, and when they don't get the results how they thought they were supposed to be, or God doesn't answer prayer in the timing that they thought that they should have, or there's no manifestation of the blessing that they thought that they would receive, all of a sudden, motives are exposed. When we no longer want to position our lives in the house of prayer, because it's not benefiting us. Where we no longer want to serve the kingdom of God because we're not seeing the tangible benefit of that. Most of us sitting here are thinking, well, I don't operate like that. I just love Jesus because I love Jesus. You know where the real trying of our faith comes? Is when disease strikes. The real trying of our faith comes is when we may give and we actually don't see a return or God multiply immediately. The question then becomes kind of like, I thought it was give and it'll come back to you, press down, shaking together, running over. I wouldn't have given if it wasn't coming back. None of us think like that, right? But what we find here is we find that Jesus comes in and he overturns their systems. Jesus comes in and he says, it is not about your gain, it is not about your profit, it is not about your convenience, and he drives out the money changers and he declares, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And ultimately, what is that declaration? It means a house of fellowship and communion with God, that your first and your primary calling is that of fellowship and communion with the man Christ Jesus. And if life has become about anything, other than that God is after the idols in your heart do you want to know what this passage of scripture shows us it displays the jealous heart of God if you're kind of like oh Jesus was angry Jesus was mad what about the meek and mild Jesus 
Jesus was manifesting and displaying the jealous heart of God towards his people. For us in our day and in our culture, the jealousy of God is something that is largely unknown and misunderstood. I'm going to tell you something. The generation that we live in, as far as Christianity in America, our mentality is, well, I'm going to the temple to make sacrifice. Please don't tell me how to do it. I'm at least going to purchase a sacrifice. Don't get so specific and choosy and exclusive on how I offer my sacrifice. We have a mentality, God should be happy with the portion we desire to give. And you know what we don't understand? Is all throughout the word of God, he literally sets conditions. He says, this is what is pleasing to me. And when you walk in these ways, this will be the fruit of that. Do you know that the blessings of God are not just carte blanche of you live like you want, you do what you want, you, you worship in the way that you prefer according to your preferences and your comfortability. This is just where I'm at. You know, we've developed this culture of Christianity of like, don't tell anyone that there's an absolute. Mm. Do you know the Bible is full of absolutes, black and white, in and out, blessing and cursing, that there is no middle ground, that in the book of Revelations, he says specifically, you are lukewarm. I wish that you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. That does not sound like the Jesus that we preach in America. We preach the Jesus of, at least I'm lukewarm, at least I'm not cold, at least I'm halfway there. At least I'm giving a little bit, even if it's not all. At least he has a portion of my attention. A portion of my income. At least I give him 15 minutes in the morning. Amazing. What we see in the Bible is we see a jealous God who is actually after the entirety of your heart. He is not pleased with a portion. He is not pleased with a measure. And I'm not here to paint him out to be some kind of a, a extremist, hard, difficult. Let me say this to you. You were created for wholeheartedness. He knows how you were created and wired to function. He knows that the only time that you are operating in health and in strength is when you're pursuing wholeheartedness. Do you know 99.9% .9 of the Christians that are struggling in life, it comes down to an issue of consecration. We wonder why we're struggling in so many ways. Come to a place where you consecrate your life to the Lord and deal violently with sin and compromise. And you watch the peace of God begin to rule and reign in your heart and mind. You watch order come to your emotions. You watch clarity come to your thinking. Compromise destroys. Mixture weakens. And that's what Jesus was saying. He wasn't standing afar off saying, well, I'm just at least glad they came to the temple. Thanks for offering me something. He's not satisfied with our half-hearted attempts at worship. He's a jealous God who wants us to pursue wholehearted abandonment. And you know, you can think, well, that's, 
the Bethany Temple rendition of the Bible. <laughs> but I'll be honest with you, if you begin to look, and if you begin to see with eyes throughout the Word of God, this is the theme all throughout the Word of God that we find. <clears throat> James 4, 4 through 5. I'm actually going to read it to you. I'm in Hebrews. <clears throat> Here's some strong language from James. Adulterers and adulteresses. Okay, just pause right there. Hello? That's the language of marriage. That's the language of covenant. Adultery actually only happens when you belong to one person solely and you're violating that commitment to be devoted to one. The language of adultery is, I have made a covenant and I have committed myself to live only for you. This is the, when you stand at an altar and you make your covenant, you're saying, I am committed to you and you alone. Not only do I give myself to you, I'm forsaking all others. Adultery is when you cease to forsake all others. You cannot give yourself in devotion without forsaking all others. So this is the language that James is using here. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Do we want to just pause right there? That's terrifying. That is terrifying. The American gospel and the American church right now sets itself in entirety to, let's be a friend to the world. That somehow, if we're not a friend to the world, I'm not talking about being a friend to sinners. Yes, be a friend to sinners. But friendship with the world means having love and endearment and devotion to the systems of this world. The kingdom of this world, which is utterly and completely contrary to the kingdom of God. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not think that the scripture says in vain, here we go, the spirit who dwells in you yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Do you hear that language? He yearns jealously. Do you know where they see, we see this language again is in Song of Solomon. If you've never read the book of Song of Solomon, I highly recommend you get Mike Bickle's study guide for it because otherwise you'll just be lost and confused and perplexed and think someone was a perv. But, <laughs> but it actually is all very, very, uh, it, it's a picture of Christ and the church. It's speaking of the commitment and the affection and the love for, that Christ has for his bride and then the corresponding love that the bride has for Christ. And in there, we see the language of that his love is as strong as death and jealousy as unyielding as the grave. This is the love of God, that his love is as strong as death and that his jealousy is unyielding as the grave. What does that mean to have jealousy as unyielding as the grave? What that means is no one escapes the grave. 
Every single one of us will go to the grave. And it means that his, his love and his jealousy is after every single one of us. That we cannot escape his love and his jealous pursuit of us. You know, we don't have time today, but this is, I, I want, I'm going to ask you to take time this week and read through Numbers chapter 6. And the reason I'm going to ask you to do that is when we're talking about this issue of the, the jealousy of God, as I said, it's something very foreign in our culture. In Numbers chapter 5, we actually find Moses and he's teaching and instructing and he's talking about the law of jealousy. And basically, when he's discussing the law of jealousy, he's talking about between husbands and wives. And he's talking about the breaking of the marriage covenant. So you see this language of the law of jealousy. That's in Numbers chapter 5. Immediately when you move to Numbers chapter 6, it's when he begins teaching about the Nazarites. And for many of us, that's a foreign concept. And for some of you, it's not a foreign concept. You're familiar with it. But it's something you choose not to acquaint yourself with readily because it's very uncomfortable. Because what we find with the language of the Nazarites in Numbers chapter 6 is it was a voluntary vow. It was not a mandatory vow. And this is ultimately what we come to see about Christ, is that he does not demand consecration of us. It's an invitation that we have. I'm actually going to read to you, um, Hudson Taylor wrote this. This is actually what he wrote about the Nazarites in this specific thing that he, it's called separation and sacrifice. So if you want to understand Nazarite consecration, and this ultimately comes down to understanding the jealousy of God, it says, this is speaking of the Nazarite. <clears throat> the Nazarite was not forbidden to eat poison berries, nor was he merely required to abstain from wine and strong drink, which might easily become a snare. Fresh grapes and dried raisins were equally prohibited. So first of all, the Nazarite actually, not only that they didn't allow wine to touch their lips, not only did they not have like the, the fruit of the vine that way, they went to the extreme of actually not having raisins or grapes, the fruit of the vine, which then produced wine. Wine in biblical times speaks of earthly pleasure. That's all it is. It's not sinful, just earthly pleasure. And so what we see as we read through what Hudson Taylor had to say is most of us have the question in our mind of, oh, I have to abstain from, from sin, sinful things, as he was saying, about poisonous berries. But there's a greater extreme that God calls us to is it's not even abstaining from that which is poisonous and sinful and harmful. It's even saying, I do not want the pleasure of this life. I want for you to be my only pleasure. That's a pretty extreme statement to make. But what we find is that was the posture and the attitude that Jesus lived with. We find that that's the posture and the attitude that Samuel lived with. We find that that's the posture and the attitude that Samson lived with. We find all throughout this history, the posture of a Nazarite is one that understood the jealous heart of God and then responded with a corresponding, I want to give you everything, the full extent and the fullest length of consecration. So it says... It was not that the thing was harmful in itself, but that doing the will of God in a matter of, of seeming indifference was essential to his acceptance. No less true is this of the Christian Nazarite. 
whether he eat or drink or whatever he do, the will of God and not self-indulgence must be his one aim. Christians often get into perplexity about worldly allurements by asking, where is the sin of this or the danger of that? There may be danger that the questioner cannot see. Satan's baits often skillfully conceal a sharp hook, but supposing that the thing be harmless. It does not follow that it would be pleasing to God spiritually helpful. The fruit of the vine is a type of earthly-born pleasures. Those who would enjoy Nazarite nearness to God must count his love better than wine. To win Christ, the Apostle Paul gladly suffered the loss of all things and counted them as dross and dung for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus his Lord. The things he gave up were not bad things, but good things that in themselves were were gained to him. And Christ himself, for our redemption, emptied himself and came to seek not his own, but the will of him who sent him. The highest service demands the greatest sacrifice, but it secures the fullest blessing and the greatest fruitfulness. And so this is what we find. If you study Numbers chapter 5 and then Numbers chapter 6, you begin to understand the, the, the law of jealousy, but then you begin to understand the Nazarite consecration and Nazarite devotion. And what I want us to do um, at this point is turn to Revelations 3. Revelations 3. There's language here that is actually consistent throughout the Word of God. Revelations 3 says, And to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write these things, says, Amen, the faithful and true witness in the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, you are miserable, you are poor, blind, and naked. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Verse 19, and as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. This is Jesus saying, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Have we embraced a Jesus that will rebuke and chasten us because he loves us? That will rebuke and chasten us because he is jealous for us? That his motivation is not one of harm, it's not one of pain, it's not one to bring suffering, but it's for our good and for our health that we might know true life. And this is what Jesus says, as many as I love, I chasten and rebuke. 
How many of us have run from the chastening and the rebuke of God? When he begins to weigh his hand of conviction upon us, we despise it. We silence it. We like to surround ourselves with voices that will affirm, voices that will cater and pat us and make us feel better about our sin and about our compromise. But do you see the language here? Jesus was talking to the church. He said, repent and be zealous. That is a word for us in the body of Christ, that we must be people that live lives of repentance. Repentance was not a one-time deal. You didn't just appropriate the blood of Jesus for all the crud in your past and all the junk. There is a place that we daily come before him and say, cleanse me of all unrighteousness and transform me into your image and likeness. The word of God is this, that you are forever being transformed from glory to glory. There are greater measures of transformation for your life. There are greater measures of glory he wants you to walk in. But you will never walk in those things if you despise his chastening. You will never walk in those things if you despise conviction. You will never walk in those things if you despise the language of repentance. But what do we find This was to the church. This was to the church. And in Luke 5, 32, we're not turning there. Mark 2, 17 and Matthew 9, 13. It's all where Jesus is saying, I have not come to call the righteous to repentance. I have come to call the sinner to repentance. We have a lot of images of who Jesus is and what he came to do, right? Made us, came to make us feel better about our identity. Came to pat us on the back and give us more self-confidence. Came to affirm us in our preferences. You know, these are all of the things that we like to think that Jesus is, that somehow he's our ego booster. He's going to anoint me and I'm going to do amazing things. No, no, Jesus came to call the sinner to repentance. That was the primary calling, the primary ministry. It is what he came for. So if we do not embrace a Jesus that calls us to repentance, we have not embraced the true Jesus Christ. And if we display any other Jesus to the world, one of, he's your ticket to get into heaven, You know, it scares me a little bit, the language of how we present the gospel. Have you accepted Jesus? Sure, I've accepted Jesus, son of God. No, no, no. Have you repented of your sins? Have you repented and recognized that you need a savior? That you cannot save yourself? That you are blind, you are wretched, and you are poor, and you are in need of the rescue of the Lord? That he came to deliver you from yourself. That apart from him, you are dying. And even if you claim the name of Christ, if you are living apart from him, living apart from his presence, living apart from fellowship and communion, that there is a way that seems right unto men, and in the end, it only leads to death. Our ways lead to death. But Jesus truly came that we could have life and life more abundantly. Guess what? You can desire life. 
You can desire the abundance of life. You can even desire to teach your coworkers and all of Boston, lead them into the fullness of life. But guess what? If you don't introduce them to the Jesus that came to call sinners to repentance, they will never know fullness of life. The greatest gift we have ever received is that Jesus convicts us of our sins and he cleanses us of our sins. You know, we're having some pretty serious conversations in our household, and I won't go into detail, but we have people very, very close to us that not only were they previously in the faith and have gone wayward, but the rapid time frame of backsliding and wickedness and perversion that has overtaken. Do you want to know the one question my little son always has? Mommy, how does that happen to Christians? He's only aware because of the other children telling him. I haven't made him aware of what's happening. The question is, mommy, how does that happen to Christians? Do you want to know the answer to that? It's when we cease repenting of our sin. It's when we forget that we need a savior. And instead of despising the fact that we may not receive from him what we desire or what we think that we deserve and expect, that we love him and we worship him with no agenda. And this is ultimately what we see with the money changers in Matthew 21. We see that there was a system in place, and if this were in America in 2019, our posture and our attitude is, God should just be happy with the leftover that I give him. God should just be happy with the portion that I give him. Instead of understanding that he calls us to wholeheartedness, Instead of understanding that he actually says, oh, actually, no, these are the terms and these are the conditions for true worship. Anything other than this is not true worship as he overturns the tables. And so I want to invite you today in closing, not necessarily for a corporate call, but I want to invite you today as we bow our eyes, bow our heads and close our eyes. I'm going to go ahead and pray over us as a community. Lord, I ask, Father, that we as a a corporate body, Father, would invite you into the temple of our lives. And God, every place, God, that we have um, set up structures or belief systems or attitudes or perceptions or mindsets, Lord, that are contrary to your truth and your wisdom, God, I ask, Lord, that we as a community of people would not despise the authority of your presence and of your word. Lord, I ask, Lord, as a community, Lord, that every place, God, that we have offered you some kind of a half-hearted worship or half-hearted sacrifice or a worship of convenience, instead of worshiping you in the way, Father, that you desire to be worshiped and that you're created to be worshiped, And instead of worshiping you in the way that we are created to worship you with wholeheartedness. God, I ask, God, that you would expose within us, Lord, every place that we despise and reject the Jesus that came to call sinners to repentance. God, I ask, Lord, that even the the mindset and the language within the church of Jesus loves you just as you are. God, I thank you, Father, that you do love us. But because of your love, you do not want us to stay the same. 
Because of your love, you want to transform us. Because of your love, you have vengeance against every enemy that seeks to ensnare and captivate and uh, cripple us, Father. And so, God, I ask, Lord, for our community of people, Father, would you open up our eyes, Lord, to see the devastating effects of sin, that sin is nothing to be excused, that sin is nothing to be justified, Lord, that um, it is not loving and compassionate to coddle other people in their sin. It is not loving and compassionate to even make others feel better about their sin, that somehow Jesus is fully tolerant. But God, we recognize that the Jesus that came to the temple, he truly was intolerant of the ways and the systems of man. He was intolerant of man's religious structure, of how they would choose to offer worship. God, I ask, Lord, that every place, God, that we have a a preference on how we will worship you or how our walk with Christ will look. Lord, I even ask, Lord, for every person under the sound of my voice, Lord, that has wanted to uh, walk with God, but according to their own terms. Lord, I ask, God, that even the very mindset that despises radical obedience, Father, I ask, Lord, that even every person under the sound of my voice that has feared somehow becoming a a freakish Christian that can no longer relate to the world. Lord, I ask, Father, that every mindset that has kept individuals, Lord, in a lukewarm state of half-heartedness, Lord, I ask that every mindset that has kept individuals, Lord, in captivity, which has ultimately produced bondage and anxiety and depression and confusion, Lord, I ask, God, that the very spirit of confusion that has played the mind of your people, Lord, that you would deliver us today, Father, that we might see clearly according to the word of God. Lord, I thank you, Father, that the light of your word would shine upon our hearts and expose darkness, expose wickedness, expose compromise, expose sin. Father, we ask, Father, that we truly would be counted as a friend of God. Lord, we say, Lord, we no longer want to live lives of seeking to be friends of the world, of somehow fitting in and looking like the world. I'm going to say there's some of you in this place, you know that your your greatest fear has been that somehow you would look different than the rest of the world. I want you to stand to your feet, and I want you to come to a place that you're coming out of those places of agreement with worldliness and compromise and sin, that you would come out of those places of wanting to blend in with culture. You were never called to blend in. You were called to be light in the midst of darkness. You are called to be salt. You are the salt of the earth. And ultimately, salt is worthless once it loses its flavor. As the body of Christ, we become worthless when we no longer want to be salt in the earth. God, we ask, Father, that you would deliver, Lord, our minds and our hearts, Lord, of every belief system that is not rooted and grounded in the truth of your word. God, that you would set our minds and set our hearts free. Lord, I ask, God, that even as it says in the book of Acts that Jesus came to call the sinner to repentance, that they might be spared from the judgment to come. Lord, I ask, Father, that we as a people would truly be those that would make ourselves ready for the return of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would have no fear in this life and no fear in death, but our greatest fear would be the fear of the Lord, that we would walk with lives in the light of your countenance, Father. Jesus.